0: Well, thank you, Obed. It really is such a, a joy to be here uh, with you this morning. I see uh, scattered about the room uh, a few Lighthouse people. And, and uh, yeah, uh, this is uh, something that we've been looking forward to for quite some time. Uh, like Obed said, we were connected through a mutual friend. And, and when I heard that uh, he had gone to the seminary and uh, he was coming to town to, to plant a church here in San Diego, well, I, I definitely wanted to come alongside and, and support him in any way that we could. Uh, We started back in 1998, and when we first came, uh, we found a lot of the local churches in this area to be a a bit unwelcoming, uh, kind of feeling like we were kind of coming into their territory or, you know, messing with their ministries, and uh, I just kind of determined that if anyone who was like-minded would come into town to church plant... Uh, That way we would do everything that we could to support them and care for them and help them get off on the right foot. And especially being an independent church plant, that's kind of how we started. Uh, We didn't have a mother church planting us, uh, but just had a a small group of people who were committed uh, to the Lord. And we prayed and just wanted to see what God would do with it. And uh, it's been uh, 19 years now, and uh, God has been tremendously gracious to us. And we're praying that he'll be gracious to King's Cross as well. Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, because that's where we are going to be uh, this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. And while you're getting there, this is just a cool occasion, and I need to take a picture. So we're going to do this, and uh, just stay still, because this is going to take a little bit. Here, here we go. Yeah, it's cross. For that, Ephesians chapter 2, and uh, we're looking at verses 19 through 22 this morning. If you're taking notes, the the message title is How to Build a Church. How to Build a Church. I figured as I was thinking about what to speak on this morning, I had about a million things uh, to say. And then Obed limited my time. So we're going to jam through this passage. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, where it says, So then... Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this amazing passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for King's Cross and for this uh, amazing occasion to come together and witness the birth of a church here in San Diego. And we pray, Father, that you would be gracious to help them along, that you would guide them, protect them, nourish them, and by your grace allow them to grow. But even this morning, as we focus our hearts on your truth, Father, we come dependent on you, understanding, Lord, that apart from you, we can't know you and we would not understand what your word has to say to us. And so independence, confessing our need for you, Lord, we ask that you would come and teach us and give us hearts that are open to hear your word, eyes that are open to see you, ears that are open to hear your truth. Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to us this morning, and especially if there's any area in our lives that is in need of change, that by your grace, again, Lord, you would accomplish that change in us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 is embedded into a really amazing context that begins uh, far, as far back as verse 11 where the Apostle Paul is focusing his attention on Gentile believers. Gentile believers, people who are not Jews, because salvation had come through the Jews. Jesus coming from Israel, and the church being born in Jerusalem. And now, as it's being taken to the ends of the earth, particularly through the Apostle Paul, there's a big question as to what to do with all of these people who are not Jews, that are kind of coming to faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were all sorts of misunderstandings and and even false teaching that was permeating the church saying that if someone wasn't a Jew and wanted to come to faith in Jesus Christ, they needed to do that through judaism That they had to go through the rites of Judaism. They had to be circumcised. They had to go through all the ceremonial rituals and all of that in order to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so here you are as a pagan. And if you want to get to Jesus, you kind of have to go through the Jews. And and the Apostle Paul kind of tackles that idea here in Ephesians chapter 2. Talking about in verse 11 how these Gentiles who are in the flesh, the uncircumcision... Uh, At one point, we're separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But what's amazing about this message of the gospel is that Paul corrects their thinking and helps them to understand that there aren't two ways of salvation. There isn't a way of salvation for the Jews and a way of salvation for the Gentiles. But it's the same God working with the same uh, gospel in the hearts of the people to bring them to saving faith. And so this is kind of the theme, the overarching theme, that he's speaking from here in this passage. And uh, we're going to focus here on his concluding thoughts, starting in verse 19. But it's important for us to understand the context. Now, the Apostle Paul is laying down, hammering into their understanding what the gospel is. And, and, and one of the things that offends him is this idea that the gospel can be tampered with that the gospel can be altered, Uh, it isn't left to us to mess with the message of the gospel as it has been given to us by the Spirit of God. And so these people who were once far off have been brought near through the message of the gospel. This idea that we were sinners who have offended a holy God. And because of that, we are deserving of His judgment. But by the grace of God, not wanting to see us faced the consequences of our sin, sent His Son on our behalf, who came and lived a perfect life. And at the end of His life and His ministry, went to the cross. And the Bible tells us that He did that to serve as our substitute, to die in our place, to die our death, the punishment that we deserved, so that all those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ could be saved. and, and, And not face that condemnation of God, but have hope in Him. And so through this gospel message, Paul is explaining here that God is bringing to himself a people for his own possession. God is establishing his church. But there's something greater that he's doing beyond that. It's, I mean, that's great in and of itself. But God isn't just bringing a people to himself. He's also in his good plan, bringing people together with one another. And, uh, and he chooses to do this, working out his sovereign plan. Through the church. And this is one of the things that's so special about what's going on here at King's Cross, that you get to be a part of this plan. You get to be a part of what God is doing. And, and, and this is an interesting observation because as we walk through our outline, we're going to see certain principles that we ought to be committed to as a church. But I hope you understand as you look through this passage that the subject of the verbs is God. God is the one who is establishing His church. God is the one who is who's doing this work. And that's really important for us to understand, especially in the context of a church plant. You know, you have a group of people coming together with all sorts of ideas and opinions about what this church ought to be, what it ought to look like, what kind of personality should it have, what kind of music should we sing, how should we dress on Sunday mornings? <laughs> Can I challenge you with this thought that in an ultimate sense, the only opinion that matters in the end is the one who's doing the work? The only opinion that matters in the end is, is what God thinks of this ministry. And it doesn't matter how big this ministry grows to. It doesn't matter the dynamics of the fellowship and all of that. If, if you've departed from what God has designed this ministry to be, then this ministry is a failure. Uh, we say this all the time back at Lighthouse. You know, it just, in terms of walking every step in dependence on the Lord. That the second we cease to depend on the Lord, it doesn't matter what the numbers are. It doesn't matter what the giving is. We failed. We failed. And so that's, that's really the thought that I want to bring as we walk through this passage. Considering what God's idea uh, of a church is. And, and, and Paul likens this work of raising the church to the construction of a building. And if you're going to build a building, appropriately, you need blueprints, right? And the blueprints are very important. If you're wanting to build a hospital, it wouldn't make any sense to use the blueprints for a restaurant. They're not going to have the right things that you need for a hospital to function. And as we walk through this, we kind of see God's blueprints for His church. And and, and the different components, the different details that, that God provides for those blueprints for His house. And so if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to walk through three details in the blueprints of God's house. Three details in the blueprints for God's house. And it it kind of begins here in verse 19 and and 20 with a solid foundation. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're going to walk through the significance of that in just a little bit. But in verse 20, he says you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The first detail in the blueprints of God's house is a solid foundation that you want to build on a rock solid foundation. And the apostle Paul identifies that foundation in God's building plan as the apostles and the prophets. They're foundational in that the Lord used them, historically, to bring about the birth of the church. We see this in Acts chapter 2, right? On that day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches that one sermon, 3,000 people come to know the Lord. Immediately, you have an instant church, right? And, And so you see that, historically, kind of work itself out through the book of Acts, as God works through these apostles and prophets to bring about the birth of His church. But... I want you to understand that by mentioning the apostles and the prophets, the Apostle Paul here is not just making a historical statement. It's not just historically significant that God used these men, these apostles and prophets to bring about the birth of His church. This is a theological statement as well. They're not only foundational historically in that they were the people that God used. But theologically, they're foundational in that they faithfully proclaimed the message of the gospel. And the church was built upon the doctrine that they taught. That's one of the things that we see in Acts chapter 2. The the things that the, the early church were committed to. One of the things that stands out is the apostles' teaching. That they were committed to sound doctrine. They were committed specifically to the message of the gospel. Again, Paul doesn't want to leave any room for tampering with that message. You don't mess with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't turn it into something else. Like he says to the Galatians, there is no other gospel. There is only one gospel that saves us. And that is the bedrock authority of the church's ministry. If if King's Cross is going to be a church that builds on a solid foundation, it's going to be a church that's committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are a people saved by grace. That we're a people that have gathered together because of that grace. That we stand in that grace and we boldly proclaim that grace of God. This is the gist of the chapter. That the Apostle Paul is helping the church to understand. That we've all been saved. Whether Jew or Gentile. By the grace of God. It's one gospel that saves us. Not two. And that is the foundation of this church. And it kind of brings me back to the Great Commission. When when Jesus commissions His his disciples in Matthew 28. And He says, I want you to go into all the earth. And I want you to make disciples. And and he, He kind of lays out how that's going to come about. He says two things. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I want you to teach them all that I've commanded. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And I love that Jesus kind of organizes it that way. Because when He says that He wants His followers to be baptizing people, you know, I don't know how the last time you actually done someone in water... (laughs) You disobedient people. No, no, that's, I don't really think that's Jesus' intent. When he talks about baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's talking about everything that's associated with that idea, meaning a person's initial conversion to, to Christ, that a person's initial uh, a step of faith. That, that by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is talking about helping them to understand their problem of sin, their need for a Savior. The fact that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. And that eternal life and hope can only be offered through Him. But He doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, help them to come to saving faith. From there, He says, I also want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded. And so, I want you to help them come to a place of faith. And help them to understand that once they come to that place of faith. Yeah, they need to be baptized in obedience to my command. But from there, don't stop. I also want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded. Here they are as this you know, baby Christian. I want you to plant yourself next to them and walk with them. And help them grow and help them to understand the truth of God. So that they can live according to my commands. And come to a place where they are strong enough to become a disciple maker themselves. And so as you look at what Jesus commissions his followers to do. He's calling them to be committed to the Gospel. And calling them to be committed to the teaching of the Word. Help them to observe all that I've commanded. And that's what a church does. That's what King's Cross needs to build on. That's the foundation. The Gospel message and sound doctrine. The Gospel message and the Word of God. When we talk about, you know, that this church, really the only ultimate opinion that matters is God's. Well, He's communicated that opinion In the pages of his word. He hasn't left it to us to redefine church. He hasn't left it to us to figure this out on our own. He's told us what we ought to be committed to. The direction that we're supposed to go. What the goals that we have uh, that, that ought to be in mind. Even what this body ought to look like. And how we ought to function. And how we ought to serve. And how we ought to love. He's laid it all out for us. And so I would say that the wisest way to go, in terms of not only establishing this church, but moving towards the future, is to be mindful of what God wants this church to be, and to build on that foundation. Does that make sense? He moves on from that that foundation to the cornerstone. He says this at the end of verse 20. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself... Being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. And that's not something that maybe we're really familiar with. This is a a construction term from back in the first century. And, And the cornerstone was the most important part of the foundation. It was the one stone that bore most of the weight of the building. And from that stone, all the rest of the walls were measured out. If that stone was cut crooked, then all the walls would be crooked and the building would not be able to stand And so the Apostle Paul, communicating what God's will is for his church, says it's built on the foundation of the Apostles and Prophets. Not just historically, but theologically. It's built on what they taught. And the central teaching is Jesus Christ. The, The most important thing that you need to be focused on as a ministry is Christ himself. And so he refers to Jesus as that cornerstone. You know, they've done some archaeological work in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. And it's found that there are five of these stones that kind of are significant in the foundation uh, of the Temple in Jerusalem. The largest one that they found was 55 feet long, 11 feet high, 14 feet wide. It weighed about 570 tons. That's significant. (laughs) That's, That's weight bearing. You know, you can build on a foundation... Like that. And yeah, the foundation is the message proclaimed by the apostles and the prophets, but the message centers on the person of Jesus Christ. This is what the Lord spoke of through the prophet Isaiah, back in Isaiah 28 16, where he said, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And the, the Apostle Peter understands what Isaiah is talking about. And he's referring to Christ. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, he says that this honor is for you who believe. Uh, and, uh, and for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. And so he uses this imagery of this Stone, Christ being this chief cornerstone. And he says, for those who don't believe, this has become a stone of stumbling. You walk along and you trip over it, right? But for those who believe, you understand that this is the cornerstone. This is the stone upon, you, upon which you build everything. It's the most significant thing that we ought to be committed to. The goal of the church is to see its people grow in Christ. Christ. To see Christ formed in you is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and and verse 19. That this is what he agonizes over. That the Galatians had departed from the true gospel and he's trying to steer their hearts back to the truth. But he communicates the goal in Galatians chapter 4. It isn't just that you would love one another, it isn't just that you would have a few things in common. He, he summarizes the entire goal of his ministry by saying, I want to see Christ formed in you. This is, it's similar to what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. It, it's kind of my life verse in terms of summarizing what my goal is in, in the ministry of the church. Where the Apostle Paul communicates Him, Christ, we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully the works within me. Paul uses two Greek words that are very significant. Kopiao, agonizomai. Kopiao, from which we get the word copious. Agonizomai, the word from which we get the word agony. Paul says, this is my laborious toil. This is why I sweat every day in the ministry. This is what I give myself over to, to the point of exhaustion. That I might find you complete in Christ. He's the cornerstone. How will you know that King's Cross is going in the right direction? By what standard? By what measure? Is it going to be how full the room is a year from now? Is it going to be what the offering looks like a year from now? How will you determine the success of this ministry? I'll tell you one thing. As you look at the membership of this church a year from now, are they more like Christ than they are today? Do you see more of Christ being formed in them? That's the standard by which this ministry will be measured. And it brings us to the third point, which is a stable structure. He says this in verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, as the church grows and as people get saved... God is a master builder who is fashioning this building together. And and he uses an interesting word because there's a word that the Apostle Paul typically uses when he talks about building up a building, right? There's a particular Greek word, oikodameo. I know it doesn't mean anything for you, but that's the word he would usually use to, to talk about building up a structure. That's the word that's oftentimes translated, edify. When you edify the church and you're building it up. Paul uses that word about building up a building to describe the work that's being done in a church. But he uses a different word here, which is interesting to me. Paul, you kind of missed out on the the one word that you use over and over again in talking about the building of a church. Why switch words here? And, And the word that he switches to is very interesting because it has in mind bringing things together in a very close Way. Imagine like two Legos coming together. You know? It kind of reminds me of the building of the temple uh, in Jerusalem. If you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem, it's one of the most remarkable things that you'll see. You know, because this is before the days of machinery and huge trucks and things to do the work. The stones of the temple fit together so well that at places you can't even slide a piece of paper between the stones. And that's the idea behind this word. That God is not only fashioning together this structure, but He is making the stones fit together in such an orderly and neat way that it just makes sense. It just makes sense. This word is repeated in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16 in talking about a body metaphor, right? Paul uses this word to describe the joints that hold us together. And in first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, Paul uses a form of this same word to talk about the, uh, the betrothal of a, of a husband and a wife. It's a coming together. And it's not just a coming together. It's bringing together these stones that are of different sizes and shapes. Different colors. Right? Different purposes. And fitting them together. Bringing them together strategically and functioning. So that they function together as one unified whole. That's the idea behind this word. And this is what's significant. Because finally Paul helps explain to them what is the finished product of this building. He's not just building a house. Specifically, he says in verse 21, that God is building the temple. A holy temple in the Lord. Why is that significant? Well, it's significant because as I look around this room. I'm just assuming here that not too many of you are from a Jewish heritage, right? And I don't know if this would shock you, but neither am I. Right? <laughs> What's significant about this, that Paul would describe this building as a holy temple in the Lord, is that he's writing to a Gentile audience. If you know anything about the temple in Israel, there was this perimeter that they set up around the temple. ...with these signs that read, if you are a Gentile, you do not cross this perimeter. If you go past this sign, we will kill you. And, and so this was, is this was what it was. There was a temple for the Jewish people. And yeah, there was a court for the Gentiles, but it was outside. And there was a perimeter. There was a barricade. And you were not to go any closer to the temple... Than that sign. And if you took even one step beyond that sign, they would take you outside of the city and they would stone you to death. And so for Paul to say that God is constructing a holy temple, and that you all, and myself included, are part of this building process. And this is what's significant. He doesn't just say that you have access. You are the stones that make up the building. You don't just have access to what the Jewish people are doing. You are integrally part of this building process. And that's what's so awesome to me. When he he started off in verse 19 about them no longer being strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints in the world. That's what was really significant to me about this passage. It wasn't just that he was taking stones of different shapes and sizes and colors and fitting them together with other stones and making them fit all neat and clean. But significantly, he was taking two groups of stones that wanted nothing to do with each other, who completely hated each other and were at enmity with one another. And brought them together into one unified whole that became the household of God. You take a look around, and you see all sorts of different people, all sorts of different backgrounds. I'm sure if we shared all sorts of things about ourselves, we'd come to find that maybe we don't have a whole lot in common. You know, how many Cubs fans? Yes, yes, there are some elect and godly people here, right? Die-hard Cubs fan, right? How many people hate pizza uh, with pineapple? Yeah, see, godly people, right? Godly people, yeah. How many people hate apple products? Just me? (laughs) Do you see what the Apostle Paul is getting at? We all have our differing opinions. Some are more right than others, like I'm always right. But we all have our different personalities. We all have our different backgrounds. And maybe outside of who we are in Christ, we would have not only nothing in common, but maybe outside of Christ, we would come to a place where we would absolutely hate each other. That was what was going on in Ephesus. And this is what Paul is saying. God, as this master builder, laying down the perfect foundation with the perfect cornerstone, is erecting this building fitted together with these stones that have nothing to do with each other and hate each other, and bringing them together into one building with one purpose, with one direction, one goal. And as kings cross, you get to be a part of that. And that's significant. That's significant that we don't just have access, that we are the building blocks that God is using to construct this building. And your relationships together as members of this church reflect this reality. I love what he says uh, just a couple chapters later in Ephesians chapter 4. When he talks about the implications of this. He says in chapter four, starting in verse one, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What calling is he talking about? The calling he has been referring to back in chapter two, this calling that we've been saved by the grace of God, brought together into one household together, the house of God that he built by his spirit. And so what are the implications of this, starting in verse 2? "...with all humility, and gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace." Paul says that your salvation, your testimony, has a direct impact on the person next to you. They're relational words. It's not just a general humility. It's a humility that you have to one another. It's not just a general patience. It's a patience that you have with one another. And my favorite term, bearing with one another. If you want the Patrick Show translation of that word, it's putting up with each other. <laughs> That's the word. The implication of the gospel on your life is that it has a direct impact on the person next to you. And the way that you relate to each other. And he gives the reason for that, starting in verse 4. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Why has God called us to this unity? Not only because of the impact of the gospel on our lives, but because our lives reflect who He is. And in the life of King's Cross, that's what this unity represents. Because if you get into conflict with one another, and you are unrepentant in that conflict, you are essentially saying this. We don't have one God. You have your God that you serve, and I'll have my God that I serve. You stay on that side of the room with your Jesus, and I'll stay on this side of the room with my Jesus. It isn't two gospels that's or one gospel that saves us. You get saved by your gospel over there, and I'll get saved by my gospel over here. We take what God had always intended to be one and divide it into two. Do you see the significance of this? As God is bringing this building together, built upon that sure foundation, with that perfect cornerstone. He is putting together a stable structure. Oh. If I could close with one thing. is just to say this. Again, God is the subject of the verbs. God is the subject of the verbs. And moving forward as King's Cross. This is really what I would impart to you. Is trust what God is doing here. Mm-hmm. Measure your success against what God wants this ministry to be. Be committed to the things that God wants you to be committed to. And whether or not this ministry, by the grace of God, is allowed to thrive. Or like so many ministries, ends up closing its doors. In the end, the success of the ministry will be gauged upon your faithfulness to these blueprints. Your faithfulness to what God calls this ministry to be. And that's it. This is what God is calling to you. For you to be in Christ... And obviously, in order for that to happen, you need to know Christ. He's an amazing God. None of us deserve any of this. (laughs) I mean, when you think about what the Gospel is, we deserve His condemnation. We deserve His judgment. We have sinned against and offended a holy God, who is the Creator of heaven and earth, who spoke and creation came into existence. To be on His bad side is not a safe place to be. To have God as your enemy is not a safe place to be. And yet, according to Romans chapter 5, apart from Christ, we are self-proclaimed enemies of God. We rebel against Him because God created us with a purpose to live for Him. And instead of living in accordance with that purpose, we decided to say, God, you know what? I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to live for my pursuits. I'm going to live for my desires. I'm going to pursue my direction. It's about what I want in my life. It's my career. It's my family. They're my children. It's my house. It's my car. It's my retirement. This is the reality of what it means to be in Christ. That God opens our eyes to see that rebellion. And saves us from it. It's amazing that Jesus forgives us of our sins. And yes, that is an amazing thing. And if all He did in taking our sins upon Himself on that cross was to cancel our debt and forgive us of our sins, that would be amazing. If all He did was forgive us for all the things that we've done, that would be amazing. But the Bible goes beyond that. Our sin is not just what we do. Our sin is a condition of who we are. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus saves you from your sin... He saves you for real. He changes you and transforms you and makes you new in Him. The old things are gone. Behold, new things have come. And to be in Christ essentially is to say, Jesus is not about me anymore. It's not about my desires and my direction and my my will. God, it's about what you want for my life. Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? How do you want me to think? How do you want me to live? Where you go, I, where, where you send me, I will go. And what you command me to do, I will obey. Because you're God, and I'm not. This morning, if you're sitting here, and that is not your reality, that's one of the reasons that King's Cross is here. To impart to you the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And it isn't just a formula. It's the fact that there is an amazing amazing God who is gracious and merciful even though we deserve His judgment in His love not wanting us to see that judgment provided a way of salvation to His Son we want to point you to His Son we want you to know Jesus that cornerstone of this ministry because He's everything to us and there's nothing greater than living for Him Please don't leave here today without finding out more about what it means to be in Christ and live for Him. Please talk to us and find out more about what it means to be a Christian uh, if you're not one this morning. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing thing to uh, be here, to witness, again, the birth of a church. God, it's an exciting thing to be a part of this. and We pray, Lord, that You would Be gracious to cause this ministry to grow in you. That its members would love each other and love you with all their hearts. Father, I pray for Obed and Eleanor. I pray for the leadership of this church. That you would help them to steer this ministry in the way that you've directed. To be committed to the things that you have called them to be committed to. That they would be careful to gauge their success by the standard that you have set. Father, in the end, we know that it's you that's building your church. And it's by your grace that ministries are formed. It's it's by your grace that ministries grow. And so moving forward, we trust you with King's Cross. And we pray, Father, that you'd be honored through this ministry and that we would be helped by the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Alright, well, before we uh, move on with the service, uh, we want to pray for Obed and Ellen, yeah? That would be be good. And uh, I I told the church planting team uh, the significance of of what this is. Uh, Church planting is hard. It's hard. When Lighthouse first started here in San Diego, I was a senior in college. I didn't know anything. Uh, But I got to intern uh, with my pastor, John Kim. Uh, At the time, uh, he was bivocational. He drove uh, up to San Clemente every day for work. Worked a full-time job, came back, uh, and then did all the the stuff for ministry. Uh, I saw him often, you know, up late hours, taking care of the things of the church, discipling people, counseling people, helping people. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the month of March is actually Pastor's Wives Appreciation Month. And I'll tell you, uh, that's not an easy thing to be a pastor's wife. It is not an easy thing, and and uh, just like I told the, the church planting team, saw in part to you, you cannot take care of this couple enough. You can't bless them enough. You can't spoil them enough. Uh, you, you can't. They are giving and giving and giving and giving, and, and that's just what a pastoral heart is. Uh, I remember one time we went down to Argentina and we supported a pastor and, and gave him quite a sum of money, and only to find out um, the the later that week he gave it all away. And so the next year we came back and we gave him another sum of money and we commended him. This is for you and your family. You <laughs> are not allowed to give it away. And then we gave him some more money to give away. <laughs> but that's the pastoral heart, you know. Uh, be a blessing to them. So I'm going to ask Ovid and Elena to come up here. Um, and they've also uh, requested that a few people to join us up here. Uh, Mike and Judy Carlisle, who are of the San Diego Southern Baptist Association. <laughs> Jeremy Ayett, I think it is, uh, who's of the North American Mission Board, uh, San Diego Catalyst. Greg and Lynn Ross, Greg serves as an elder at Christ Church in Arizona, and Sam and Melinda McCrane, also from Christ Church. And if we can kind of just huddle around them, um, we'll just take a few minutes to pray. And just, I guess, as the spirit leads, uh, we can pray and lay hands on them. And uh, I'll close this in just a sec. Let's all pray.